0: Hi, ladies. Welcome to the Virtue Podcast, and Merry Christmas. My name is Leah Case, and we are officially in the countdown week, all getting ready to celebrate with friends and family. But in all the hurry, I do hope you've managed to find some quiet moments for yourself just to sit with Jesus and use these Advent lessons to focus on His to-do list for you in this season. This week, our topic is Living Ready for the Lord's Coming. And we read about a man named Simeon who lived in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. The Bible says he was righteous and devout, and he was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come. What an introduction. It made me think of an old icebreaker game we used to do in small groups years ago. You'd sit in a circle and took five minutes to get to know the person on your left. Then you were supposed to introduce them in one sentence. You could use two words to describe them and tell one interesting fact about them. And I can't think of a better description than the one Simeon was given. To have someone say of us, she's righteous and devout, and she's eagerly waiting for the Lord's coming. But what are some practical ways we can encourage each other to be living ready for the Lord? I found some in the verses we were given to read and reflect on this week. So let's do our own version of that icebreaker game. And when I say, this is my friend, and she's living ready for the Lord's coming— I want you to put your name in there. You want to do this with me? Okay, here goes. This is my friend, and she's living ready for the Lord's coming by remembering what's true. And that was my takeaway from 2 Peter 3, 1 and 9. Peter wrote letters to encourage the believers who were dealing with hardship and pressure from the culture they lived in. There was so much hostility toward the gospel that persecuting Christians had become socially acceptable behavior. So Peter wrote to help them think clearly how to endure the trials and safely navigate anything that was causing their faith to be tested. At the same time, he warned about certain people who were exerting pressure from within the church. Apparently, they thought that the apostles' teachings, which were the doctrines of faith that the church was founded on, were restrictive and outdated. They expressed their own ideas and opinions as if it was gospel truth, and the Bible calls this false teaching. Peter warned that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed or evil spoken of, which means to destroy a reputation by distorting what's true. They were twisting scripture, and some believers were beginning to falter and walk away from their faith. Okay. Okay. Sadly, there are times when we Christians sabotage our own witness by what we say or do, and we never want to stumble someone by being careless with how we live. But Peter was talking about something more sinister than being a poor witness. This was the devil's doing, and he was out to destroy the reputation of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Listen, the devil wants to twist God's word and destroy the reputation of Jesus. That's his strategy for keeping people spiritually blind so they will die in their sins. And that's why Peter wrote this letter. He said, Dear friends, this now is my second letter to you, and both of them are reminders to stir you to wholesome thinking by recalling what was foretold by the holy prophets and commanded by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own sinful desires. Where's the promise of his coming, they will ask, for all the way back to the days of our ancestors, Everything's continued just as it has from the beginning. But then, they deliberately left out the part about the flood, the part about God's judgment for sin, because it didn't fit their narrative. This happens in our culture, too. When you share your faith and what the Bible says with someone who isn't a believer, we know there will be questions and skeptics, but we may find ourselves needing to have this conversation with someone who is a Christian. A study done by LifeWay Research earlier this year revealed that 26% of people who identify as a Christian don't believe the Bible is entirely true. 38% say that religious beliefs are a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth. But the answer that stuns the most was when they were asked whether or not they agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Forty-three percent said yes. What's going on here? Does this mean nearly half of people who profess to be a follower of Jesus are lying? I'm not sure about that, but it clearly indicates that a lot of believers don't really think about what the Bible teaches or even why it matters. It's been said if you don't stand for anything, you're going to fall for everything, and the devil— who Jesus called the father of lies, is working overtime in our world to propagate lies and breed confusion at every level of society, especially in the church when he gets a chance. So Peter reminds us what's true and encourages us to be patient. What happens when it feels like nothing is happening? We think that because we can't see what God is doing, he must not be doing anything at all. So we get discouraged and quit hoping, or we can get complacent and stop watching. It was like that in Simeon's day, just before Jesus was born. After 400 years of silence, most people were just going through the motions, and they weren't looking for the Messiah. C.S. Lewis wrote a story about a junior devil being trained how to tempt and discourage people from believing in God. The junior devil said, I'll just tell him there is no God. The senior devil said, that won't work. Men instinctively know there is God. So the junior devil said, well, I'll tell them there's no hell. Senior devil says, no good, that won't work either. Most men believe there is punishment for sin. The junior devil was completely out of ideas. And that's when his evil mentor said, if you really want to destroy the church, don't tell them there is no God or no hell. Just tell them there's no hurry. That's what the scoffers were saying. Live your own truth and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Everything's fine. Nothing ever changes. And we begin to wonder when the hammer will drop. But when it seems like God isn't paying attention or doesn't care, Peter reminds us that God waits because he's compassionate and merciful. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. All the wisdom that Peter shared in these letters was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and these were truths that he had to remember as well. He understood the pressure and pushback they were living with, and he knew his time on earth was almost done, so he kept reminding them to hold on and remember what's true. And this is for us too. So here's a few more, and I hope you'll go back to Peter's letter to find the rest. Remember that because your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are protected by the power of God. So prepare your minds for action and think clearly and fix your hope on Jesus. Remember to honor God and let the way you live be an open door to share your faith. Be ready to explain what you believe and do it in a kind and respectful way. Remember that the end of all things is near, so be watchful and wise not just to talk about what's happening in our world, but to seek God's face and pray about it. Remember to love one another. We're the family of God. Use what God has gifted you with to serve and to strengthen each other. Remember, there is no shame in suffering for being faithful to Christ. God's Spirit rests on you, and when you suffer, He will restore and support and strengthen you. Remember that God cares about anything and everything that causes you anxiety. Cast it all on Him. He will be right there to help you resist the pressure and stand firm in your faith. Remember that God gives us everything we need to live a godly life. Faith, moral courage, and fortitude—that's virtue. Knowledge, self-control and perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love— Every time we lean in and obey Him, every time, these qualities will continue to grow and bear more fruit and keep us from stumbling our way through life. If there's one thing Peter knew for sure, it's that when we remember what's true and think clearly about the future, it helps us to focus and live ready for the Lord's return. Okay, here's another description. This is my friend, and she's living ready for the Lord because she keeps her lamp burning. And this was from Luke twelve thirty-five through 40. Jesus gave us two pictures of readiness here. First, we see the master's servants are awake, and they have no idea when he will come, but all the lights are on, and they're ready to meet him at the door. That's how it was in my family growing up. Maybe it was part of my mother's southern hospitality, but when company came to our house, someone was always ready to open the door and invite them in, usually before they had a chance to knock, and especially if they were family. Now, she didn't train us to keep watch at the window and hurry to open the door. We just picked it up from watching her. My mom is 94 now, and it isn't easy for her to get around, but she still has a way of saying, oh, come in, that lets you know, and there's no mistaking it, how happy she is to see you. You know, we think how happy we will be to see Jesus, but don't miss this. He eagerly waits for that day, too. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when everything is ready, I will come and I will get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's John 14, 3. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I want all of those you have given me to be with me where I am. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen says that he will return from heaven with a joyous and resounding shout and will be caught up in the air to meet him. And Revelation 19 says all of heaven will be thundering with praise and hallelujahs. Friends, this is our future. Let's be ready. Jesus said, Happy are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. He will get everything ready, have them recline at the table, and he will serve them. Can you imagine the joy that Jesus wants us to catch with this story? The master comes home from a wedding, but he's not done celebrating. He brings home all this food to prepare with his household. And these aren't doggy bags of leftovers to throw in the microwave. He has armloads of groceries. He goes into the kitchen, puts on an apron, and whips up an amazing feast. Now, his servants don't know when he's coming, but they're ready and waiting for him. So what if it's midnight? He'll lay out the most elaborate charcuterie board you've ever seen. And if it's near dawn, well, he'll treat them to omelets and bacon and fresh fruit and Dutch babies with lemon and powdered sugar. Now, I ask you, who wants to miss out on that? When Jesus comes, do we really want him to find us in a dark house asleep in our pajamas? Even when we're physically worn out and sleepy tired, let's keep the light on in our spirit and be ready. Then Jesus changed the illustration slightly, and in the second picture of readiness, the emphasis is on how sudden the Lord's return will be. Okay, if you were a young kid or a teenager in the 70s, you remember the movie, A Thief in the Night, about the girl who wakes up one morning and realizes she's missed the rapture, and now she has to go through the tribulation. And the sequels show how terrifying and hard that will be. These were super low-budget films and kind of cheesy, actually, but they were very effective at making you seriously think about being ready for the Lord's return. And it's scary to have a thief break into your house. And while those movies tried to scare people into being a Christian, the point isn't to be afraid of Jesus or to think of him hiding around a corner just waiting to jump out and scare you out of your wits. The point is to live ready. Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, "...you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night." But you are not in the darkness, so that day will overtake you like a thief. You are children of the light. You belong to the day. So let's be watchful and clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and the helmet of our salvation. The point in both illustrations is to keep your lamp burning. And having oil in our lamp is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence with us and His power working in us. Think how much we rely on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit and assures us that we are children of God. Romans 8.16 He helps us in our weakness and he intercedes for us. Romans 8.26 Without him, we wouldn't even know what's true. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will be your teacher. He is the one who will guide you into all truth. That's John 16.13 Paul describes this in detail in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, We have received the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. These are not things taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. A natural man doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. It sounds like nonsense to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Listen. We can't fully grasp spiritual truth with our own natural reasoning. When that light bulb goes on in your head or that aha moment comes through your heart, that's the Holy Spirit opening your eyes. The Spirit teaches me what I could not understand otherwise. So we live ready by staying actively engaged in our daily relationship with God, listening to His Holy Spirit speak directly to us through His Word, and following his lead. Okay, here's another description. This is my friend, and she's living ready for the Lord by being aware and obedient. This came from Habakkuk 2 and 1 John 3. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet who lived around the same time as Jeremiah, and this book is a record of his prayers. He watched his nation crumbling from within because they were no longer devoted to serving God. And though it had been a long time coming, they were so morally and spiritually corrupt that soon God was going to allow Babylon to bring them down. Habakkuk was deeply troubled, and he struggled to understand why God would allow a wicked ruler to take his people captive. "'Lord,' he cried, "'why do you tolerate wrong? Violence is everywhere. Strife and conflict just keeps increasing, and the wicked outnumber the righteous.' The law is paralyzed. Justice has become perverted. Why, Lord, why must I watch all this misery? Can't you hear all the angst in his questions? But listen to how God answers. I am doing something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely come. As for the proud ones, they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Now, that may not have been the answer Habakkuk wanted, but it lifted the weight of the world off his shoulders, which was never his to carry to begin with, and shifted his focus back to trusting God. So Habakkuk said, I will stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower to see what he will say to me and how I should answer when corrected. By the end of the book, Habakkuk is a changed person. He's still troubled, but he's trusting. He says, though my heart pounds and my legs tremble, I will wait patiently in the day of distress. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, for God, the Lord, is my strength. Habakkuk didn't pull back or quit caring about the issues of his day. Life was still painful and chaotic. But he stopped fretting or being anxious over outcomes he couldn't control. Instead, he chose to be intentionally focused on staying alert and being faithful to his assignment. We are seeing so many things happening in our world that are troubling. And God never says, don't ask me the hard questions. He cares about all of it. And honestly, sometimes the answers are hard, too. Jesus said, we will have trouble in this world, but still, don't let your heart be troubled. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Habakkuk shows us what living ready looks like. It's being aware of our surroundings and intentionally focused on being faithful to the Lord right here, right now. And that's where 1 John 3, 2 and 3 come into focus. Dear ones, we are God's children now, and what we will be hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Christ keeps himself pure, just as Christ is pure. Friends, living ready for His return is what motivates us to steer clear of anything that will pollute our heart or our mind or our soul. We've learned to be careful about what we put into our bodies. Let's be intentional about what we put into our spirit. Okay, here's our fourth description. This is my friend, and she is living ready for the Lord by rejoicing in her salvation. This is Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. These verses are a chorus taken from a song and a prayer that God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write. Have you ever read the entire book of Isaiah? It's exhausting, and it's exhilarating. It's been called the Romans of the Old Testament because it presents God's case against sinners, it unveils the wretchedness of the human heart, and it reveals the way of salvation. And Isaiah gives us some of the most beautiful, poetic descriptions of Jesus in all the Bible. Isaiah 9, of course, it's a favorite at Christmas. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on the throne of David with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 53, it's a must-read at Easter, describing Jesus, the suffering servant who had no stately form, or majesty that we should look upon him. He was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It was our griefs that he bore and our sorrows that he carried. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace. It was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. But as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their iniquities. The book of Isaiah, it gives us a song for Christmas, and it gives us a song for Easter. And now in Isaiah 25, This is a song of gratitude for God's infinite grace and his perfect plan of redemption from before the world was made. And as I read it and kept coming back to it this week, honestly, I felt overwhelmed with awe and overjoyed with praise because this is a song for eternity. And Isaiah's words become mine. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Christmas is a season filled with all kinds of music, and everybody has their favorites. And one of mine is hearing the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah with full orchestra and a choir of voices in every octave and perfect pitch. When I listen... It stirs me to wonder what heavenly choirs must sound like. You know, there are so many songs we will sing in heaven, and they will all be about Jesus. We will never stop rejoicing in our salvation. So let's start now and keep practicing as long as we have breath. Do you love to sing praise songs, even if it's under your breath where no one else can hear? It's probably already on your to-do list, but this Christmas— Why not ask the Lord for a new playlist of praise songs to take you through the day and help you keep living ready for His coming? Dear friends, I am praying for you and yours on this Christmas. May it be merry and filled to overflowing with the joy of Jesus.